But I was just thinking about my week, and, and uh, it, it reminded me of this story. I hadn't thought about it in, in forever. I was probably, I was probably seven or eight years old, and I grew up on the mean streets of uh, West Hollywood, Florida, Pembroke Pines, to be exact. And uh, grew up there. I had an older brother and a younger brother. My older brother's two years older than me. And uh, we used to, you know, go outside, play football on the side street, baseball. But there was a, a bike gang, not a biker, but a bike gang, uh, led by a kid named Dino. And I remember sometimes they'd play, come over and play football with us, and it usually ended up in a fight because that was just as much fun as playing football. And uh, I remember I was really never worried because uh, my brother, just being older, kind of the equalizer in the deal, so I knew, all right, you know, we're, we're good. We're, we're going to, we'll take care of things. But I remember one day, um, my older brother was sick, so he was inside, and so I was just outside riding my bike around uh, up and down the streets. And I remember the rule was I wasn't supposed to go all the way around the block. I was supposed to just, I could go up and down, but couldn't go around the block. And well, I ran into Dino, and Dino was by himself, and like most punks, you know, when, when, you're, when they're by themselves, they're just normal. And I was like, oh, so I was kind of riding around with Dino, and he and well, he talked me into going around the block. And I was like, you know, sure, you know, yeah. My mom told me no, but pfft, I'm seven, and uh, <laughs> so I started around the block with Dino, and then uh, we run into uh, the rest of his friends, and all of a sudden I realize I've been set up, and so. He like whistles or something, and I and I turned around on my bike, and I thought I just got to get I got to get back home, and so I know they're they're right behind me, they're chasing me, and I'm just man I'm, um I got my bike revved up, my my huffy, and uh, man just going as fast as I can around, and and I'm I'm about four houses away from from mine, and I'm just I'm going as fast as I can, and well I realized at that moment I'm done because half of the group of his group had gone the other way around the block and they beat me to my house. They were they were they were closing a gap. I wasn't going to make it. And I remember uh, I looked behind me and, and they were coming from that direction there in front of me and I just so angry and and scared and like I mean I was, it was there's was six or seven of them. And I just remember I was angry and I was scared. And I was like there's no way I can get home. There's no way I can run in the door. My brother can't see me from where we're at. And I just, man, I just, I was on my bike, and I just stopped in the middle of the road. I laid my bike down, and I had a little pocket knife. And I, I pulled my little pocket knife out, got the blade out, and I just remember I was standing in the street just shaking. And I, I was crying because I, I, mean, I was angry. I was scared. I thought, you know, this is it. And, and I, I just, <laughs> it's going down, you know. And, uh, I mean, when you're a jet, you're, never mind. Um, and so... <laughs> Just standing there, I remember just being scared and overwhelmed. But I was like, man, I'm, I'm not, there's nowhere else to run. I'm not going to run. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut somebody, at least at least clean their fingernails out. You know? And uh, man, just stood there. And I remember the closer they got, and it ended up this uh, neighbor came out. He saw us. And he came out because he saw me standing in the middle of the road with a knife. And he was like, what's going on? And, and I, I couldn't even talk. And those other guys got there, and he was talking to them. And I was like, forget this, and uh, picked up my bike and, I had a head of steam and got home. But I was just thinking, you know, you know, for me coming into this week, this weekend, just stuff personally going on in my life, just uh, stuff with extended family, just mess, just just drama, just mess, just things that we're trying to wade through and, and you know, come to reconciliation. Things in our church where I've fought for reconciliation with people and, and 
just weighty stuff. Man, things in my uh, my own family, like the the my wife, little, some health issues, nothing major, but just things that we're dealing with, and my own anxieties and insecurities, and just man, just feeling that, just feeling like from every direction, things closing in. And it's so good to come in to a weekend like this and just, all right, I'm laying down the bike, and, and this is where I'm taking my stand, right? With that song we just sang. This is, this is where I'll take my stand, is in the all-sufficiency of who Jesus Christ is, what He's done, and who He is, right? That, that, man, that is our security, that is, that is our strength, and from that position, man, I'll, I'll, right, I'll, I'll go to war with a pocket knife and just stand in the all-sufficiency of Christ. And so, for man, I, I don't know what you're coming in here with, but just encourage you, this weekend that we, man, together as men, we would focus on who Christ is. On, on, on who he is in his strength and his power, his mercy, his grace. Man, just just let Christ have his perfect work in your heart and your mind. So, um, we'll be in Exodus 3 here in a minute if you want to turn there. I know, have you all ever heard this? And I think, you know, I know we've preached it here before. And, and I want to talk about it a little bit this morning is that God's calling our lives to be a prophet, priest, and king. Have you ever heard that? That God has called us to be a prophet, priest, king in our families, in our communities, in our churches. And you say that, and, and I'm, I guess, ingrained in Bible culture now, right? And so for me, I, you know, got the context, and I, but I kind of try to push back from it and think, let me just say that to somebody. You're supposed to be a prophet, priest, and king. I can kind of maybe bring up weird images, right? Like, and be a prophet to your family. Like, tell them the winning lottery numbers, you know, be, be, be a priest, right? That you're picture yourself in your backyard, slitting the throat of a lamb. Like, what are we talking about? You know, what does it, what does it mean to be a, a prophet and a priest and a king to, to lead our families? You know, it's pretty simple. If we just broke it down, like to, to be a prophet, the idea here is that, that we speak to people on behalf of God, that we take the truth of God's word, who he's revealed himself to be, his revelation to us, and we first receive that message, and then we proclaim it to people, right? So to be a, a prophet in your own family is that, I mean, you're responsible to know who God is, to know what the truth is, and then to proclaim that message, both in how you live and, and what you say, how you teach, how you instruct your wife, your children, grandchildren, right? How, in your singleness, how you minister to other people the truth of the gospel, how you represent God to people. Now, to be a priest is the idea of representing your people to God, right? That, that this idea that you would go to God on behalf of the people that you minister to. So if that's your wife, your children, again, grandchildren, people you work with, people in your church, that, that we have a responsibility to go before God on their behalf. And then as a king, to, especially in the home, to, to lead to, to lead, not just by example, not just to rule, right? This isn't a picture of us sitting on a throne in our, in our home and demanding things and, and ruling harshly, but this idea that, man, we lead. And, and really, the biblical picture, and I was talking to a guy this morning, Spencer, and he pointed this out, that the, the real picture here is that, man, as the leader in your family, in this kingly role, the idea is, as you go, so goes your family, and you, and you see this in Israel's history with their kings. When their kings served the Lord, 
and worshiped the Lord, the nation followed suit. And then I see this in my house. I see it. I see when I'm consistent to, to get up and to be in the word and to be in prayer and to, as, as best as to my ability to surrender to Christ, I see how without forcing or manipulating, I see how my family follows. I mean, down to my two-year-old. I see how he responds. And I see also when I don't, when I'm lazy, when I'm selfish, when I'm prideful, and I see how my family follows suit. Man, that, that we, we're to lead, that, that we're to be the, the representative in our home. There's huge weight, it's huge responsibility, but really, man, it's blessing from God. And, and, and the truth is that we don't have a right to slack in this area, that, that we don't have a right not to do this. That this is what we're called to. It's what we were created for. That, that we represent God to our families, to our community. That we represent. We should be representing them before God through prayer and intercession, and that we're to lead well by example and by what we teach, what we say. So Scripture gives us this awesome example of this uh, in the Old Testament. The, the the person of Moses. Our church uh, recently, the past year, we went through uh, the Book of Exodus. Man, it was awesome to see Christ so clearly portrayed that this type, this picture of Christ emerges from the pages of the Old Testament to the person of uh, Moses. And that Moses really becomes a prophet and a priest and a king, not just for his family, but for a nation. This whole nation of people, right? And a lot of us are familiar with the story, right? That, that God has been gracious and he's going to call this people to be a nation to reveal himself back to humanity. That, that from the beginning we rebelled against God. Just as humans, we rebelled against God. We exchanged the glory of God for the lie that we could worship ourselves. That we could be our own God. And so, so we fell. We rebelled against him. But God in his grace is going to reveal himself back to us and, and, and make a way of salvation. And he does that by calling out this people. He's going to create this nation. And what's fascinating is the, the birth of this nation really happens in slavery, in Egypt. God's people are in Egypt and they're enslaved, but they begin to multiply like crazy. And they're multiplying, they're growing, the numbers are there, but they're enslaved. And so God calls out this man, Moses, to lead his people out of slavery into their own land, to be their own nation, to have their own religion, to worship the one true God. And he's going to use Moses to be this prophet, this priest, this king, to this nation born out of slavery. But where we pick up in the story with Moses in chapter 3, and he, he is anything but those three things. And it's interesting, I think we can relate a lot to him because he finds himself in a place where I think Moses is either just complacent. He's just, he's got a family, he's got a job, and he's just, he's good. He, he's 80 years old at this point, right? 80 years old, which to me is encouraging because I, I think maybe for some of us, we think, man, we've set a pattern of our lives of just kind of coasting. Or maybe you look back and you think, you know, I blew it with my kids. I don't know how to relate to my grandkids. I don't know how to minister to young men because I feel like I've made so many mistakes. I think, man, God called Moses 
to the greatest, one of the greatest works in the history of the world when he was 80 years old. There's a lot of hope. There's a lot of redemption in that. He's 80. And I think maybe he's just complacent. Maybe he's just settled into life and he's good just to kind of ride it out. Or maybe he's just eaten up with insecurities over his past failures. Right? If you're familiar with the story, Moses is raised in Egypt. From the time he's a baby, he's raised as like a prince of Egypt. But then he looks out and he sees his people, the Jews, being treated harshly. And he really takes it in his own hands to deliver them. Right? He goes out and he sees this taskmaster beating on a Jew. And he looks around when no one's looking. He strikes him dead. He kills him. And then when he knows the thing is found out, he runs away. Uh, he, he's afraid for his life. And then he spends the next 40 years of his life as a shepherd out with his other people, totally disconnected from the people of God. And that's where you find Moses. And, and, and he, he's out watching the sheep, and he sees this bush on fire, right? This bush that's on fire but not consumed. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When Yahweh saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Awesome scene, right? Goes up to the bush and on fire but not consumed. And already in this picture, God is revealing himself to Moses. Just, 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 you know, I always grew up, growing up, just, I knew this story, but what's going on here? Right? What, what's happening? The bush is burning, is on fire, but not con- being consumed. The picture. God's revealing his nature, his character. God is totally self-sufficient. God does not require anything for his existence. He's infinite. He's eternal. Just like the, the fire didn't need the bush to burn, God does not need anything for his existence. And so he does not need Moses. He doesn't need the Jews. He never needed to create us. He wasn't deficient in relationship. He wasn't bored or lonely. God is totally self-sufficient, eternal, all-powerful, right? The one true living God. But he's revealing himself as relational, that he wants to have relationship, that he wants to use us. He says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God, this one true self-sufficient God who doesn't need anything in and of himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, perfect in unity, and relationship, and joy, and peace, and love, and power, and wisdom. That God who doesn't need us desires 
to pour out His glory on us. So, man, that we'd be satisfied in Him and worship Him and love Him. The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a personal God. And He begins to reveal Himself to Moses. But He says, don't come too close, right? Why? Because He's also a holy God. He says, take off your sandals. And Moses' response here is great. How does he respond? And he hits his face. Hides his face. And this, is, this is perfect. The, the scriptures teaches us. They say the big... The scripture says over and over that the beginning of wisdom, a beginning of right knowledge, is the fear of the Lord. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And here in this moment, God's going he's revealing himself to this man. He's going to change who Moses is. And it starts by Moses realizing this is a holy God. And he fears him. He hides his face. But then God begins to reveal to him his plan. He says, I've seen my people suffering. I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to bring them out of slavery, right? That their identity is going to be no longer that they're a slave to Pharaoh in Egypt, but they're going to be my people and they're going to worship me. And God reveals himself as a redeemer. This is huge. We we need to get this. All-powerful, infinite, self-sufficient God who doesn't need anything but who wants to have a relationship with us for His glory and our good. And He is a Redeemer. And if we just let that one point set in, I think it would be worth the time sitting in these chairs. God, in His nature, in His character, who He is, is a Redeemer. That That means God is glorified and takes joy in taking things that are broken and twisted and perverted and empty and dead, and he takes joy in healing it, fixing it, and straightening it, filling it up, making it alive. And by it, I mean us, right? People. Situations, families, relationships. What seems too far gone, what seems dead and cold, God can make alive. He can heal. He takes joy in doing it. He takes joy in being known as the great Redeemer. He says, I'm going to bring them out. I'm going to rescue my people. They're coming out of slavery. And I'm going to use you to do it. Now, this is where Moses starts to respond poorly. But where I think we can relate to him a lot. He asks a good question. God says, I'm going to do this. Jump down to verse 13 in Exodus 3. Then Moses says to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said this, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So he says, this is a good question. People have been in Egypt, right? Egypt has tons of gods. They got a God for everything. And the different gods do different different things. And now Moses has been in Midian, and, and, and they've got their own God or gods. So he's asking me, saying, what? they're going to ask me who you are. What, what, who are you? What kind of God are you? God says, I am who I am. 
I am the one true living God. Infinite. Perfect. My name is Yahweh. Self-sufficient. You tell them that I'm coming to get them. The God who made promises. This covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. This God who makes promises and keeps them. That He's faithful to His word. He says, you tell them that I'm coming to get them. And then Moses begins to kind of back up in the conversation because God tells him, he says, listen, you're going to go to the people of Israel, tell them this, and they'll listen to your voice. But Moses replies to God and he says, but they won't listen to me. And I think, let's be careful here, right? Think about this. Moses, we're, we're looking back in time, we're reading this black and white letters on a page, but think about it in your own life. And God calls you to do something, convicts you to do something. God says, you're going to go. They're going to believe you. No, they won't. That's dangerous ground, isn't it? No, they won't, God. God is gracious and he's patient. He says, let me do this. Take the staff in your hand, throw it down. Throws it down and becomes a snake, right? Remember the story? And Moses reaches down, picks it up, turns back into a, into a staff. He says, take your hand, put it in your cloak take it out, and his hand's covered in leprosy. He says, put it back in. Takes it out, it's healed. He says, take that jug of water, pour it on the ground, it, it turns into blood. God says, I'll, I'll be with you. I'm going to be with you. He's given him his promise. Now, really what his promise is, is his presence. I'm going with you. And he gives him these signs. I mean, to show him, to, to give him, to encourage him. He's being so gracious and patient. It should have been enough, right? When God said, they'll believe you, Moses should have said, yes, sir. He says, no, they won't. So God's gracious, and he gives them these signs to perform. He tells them, you're going to go before the Pharaoh. And Moses replies and says, who am I to go before the Pharaoh? Who am I to go before the Pharaoh? And I think this is where we can relate so much to Moses. Who am I? Because what's Moses thinking about here? God's telling him all these things he's going to do through him. And he says, who am I? I think that's where we live a lot of our life thinking about ourselves, focusing on ourselves, our strengths, our weaknesses, whether that drives us to be prideful and arrogant or insecure. Either way, we're focusing on ourselves. Maybe Moses is thinking of 40 years wasted in the wilderness, going from being a prince of Egypt to a shepherd of sheep. He's eaten up with guilt over the murder he committed. I don't know. Who am I? That wasn't really the question. God's not saying, this is who you are, Moses. God is saying, this is who I am. And this is what I'll do. It's so good to stop, pause, think. The things that God has called us to do, the, the men that God has called us to be, we don't have the right to say, but who am I? Look at all my failures. Just like we don't have the right to say, oh, I'm qualified to do this because look at all my successes. That is not biblical Christianity. God is calling us to to high and glorious things. To represent Him to the people we care most about. Man, what, what higher calling is there? To speak the truth of God to people. To reveal to people who the one true living God is. To be a prophet. To be a priest. To go before God on their behalf. To speak directly to the God of the universe about our family, our friends, our churches, our lost co-workers, 
God has called us to these high and difficult things to live holy lives. And we mess up if our first question is, who am I? Our focus needs to be on who, who God is, who God has revealed himself to be. But again, God's gracious. Tells him you're going to go before Pharaoh. And Moses says, but I am not an eloquent man. Never in my life have I been an eloquent man. And since you started talking to me, I'm not eloquent. I can't go before Pharaoh. Moses basically saying, I don't, I don't speak good. I don't speak good. And God replies and he says, well, well, Moses, I don't speak well. <laughs> um, I don't know what that means. All right. Grammar joke. <laughs> uh, yeah, he says, I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't talk good. And God goes off. You look in the text, he says, he said, who made man's mouth? Right? Who made man's tongue? God's saying, speaking was my idea. I created language and words. He says, I'll be with you. God is making all these awesome promises. And he goes on. Moses keeps trying to back up. He keeps trying to back out of the, the responsibility that God has laid on him. He doesn't want to be the prophet and the priest and the king for the people of Israel. Send somebody else. Listen to what Moses says. Chapter 4. Verse 12. God says, Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, Moses said, O oh my Lord, please send somebody else. All right. Who are you? God reveals himself. Who am I, Lord? I don't speak good. Send somebody else. The ice now is, I mean, it got thin along the way, and now it's broke. Right? God, send somebody else. I don't want to go. I don't want to do it. No, Lord. Listen to what happens. Verse 14. Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. What's missing? Y'all tracking with me? What's missing? No, God, I'm not going to go. Send somebody else. And the anger, the wrath of Almighty God, Moses' face is inches away from the burning bush, the, the manifest presence of God, the angel of the Lord. We believe, I believe it is, the second person in the Trinity, Jesus, pre-incarnate, in the bush, speaking to Moses, and he is saying, I don't believe you. No, I won't go. And God's wrath is kindled against this man. And you would think that the next word sentence would go something like, and God consumed him from the bush and turned him to ash. And now behold, we'll use his brother Aaron, right? And we'd all take the moral lesson don't talk back to God, right? Still a good lesson, but it doesn't happen. God says, you know what? I'll bring your brother. He'll help you out. Where did the wrath go? Is God, does God just have a temper and then he, he reined it in? No. God's wrath is always just. God's wrath is always just. It's righteous. It's pure. When God is angry, he is still good and worthy to be worshipped. 
but for him to be just. Well, I mean, that, that wrath has to go somewhere. Wrath has to go somewhere. Where does it go? Where does it go? Thanks for asking. It goes to Romans chapter 3. Turn over there. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here it is. In Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where did the wrath go? How could God, in that moment, talking to this sinful human who just said, I don't believe you, and no, I won't go. How did God not consume him? Why does the story continue that Moses becomes the greatest example of faith next to Abraham in the Old Testament? That God said, that God's relationship with Moses gets to be where he says, I have a relationship with you, Moses, like no one else. I talk to you face to face. God would use Moses as the clearest picture of who Christ is from the Old Testament. That Moses, from 80 on, typifies Christ. That his life is a picture of who Christ would be and what he would do. How did Moses get to those days? How could God be so merciful and gracious to Moses that he would pass over his sin and use him for his glory? To bring a people out of slavery. To give them the law, the instruction of of God to know how to live in relationship with God. That Moses would, would lead the people... And provide for the people like a prophet and speak the truth of who God is. As a priest, he would pray for the people. And God's hand of wrath would not strike the Israelites dead when they disobeyed. But he would listen to the voice of Moses and forgive them and be gracious to them. That, that as a king, he would provide security and provision for his people. As he would strike the rock and water would be given. That he would pray and manna would fall from heaven. How did he get to be used by God in this way? He's a sinful man. He's a sinful, arrogant, insecure failure of a man. How did he get here? How did did he end his days on a different mountain saying, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Most bold prayer in the Bible. God, show me your face. Moses, at the end of his life, saying, I don't want to back up. I want to know more. At the end of his life, he's saying, God, if you don't go with us, don't send us. He's asking God to do more. How did he get there? God, in his divine forbearance, passed over sins previously committed so he could be righteous, so he could be both just and the justifier. God can be righteous. He does not sweep sin under the rug. He's not an angry dad losing control, losing his temper. He is a just God, but he stays his hand of wrath 
so He can pour it out on Jesus. What Moses had the privilege of being a picture of, Jesus is in reality. And Moses needed Jesus to save him, just like you and I need Jesus to save us. How are are you and I going to be the godly fathers and husbands and leaders, preachers, Sunday school teachers, small group leader, witness at work? How are we going to do that? How are we going to be the men that God calls us to be, to live holy lives that don't compromise when the pressures of the world are closing in around us? We stop and take our stand steadfast, unwavering, unmovable on the gospel. How can we do that? How can we be the men that God created us to be? Only by the blood of Jesus. Only because just as Jesus hung on the cross for Moses, he hung on the cross for us. Unless we forget that Jesus had to be a propitiation for our sin. Remember, we talked about it a minute ago. From the beginning, we rebelled against God. Our first, our first father was a failure. Right? Adam, he failed. He was to be these things, prophet, priest, and king. And he failed. And sin entered the world. And sin has spread to all. Because in Adam, we're all sinners. We're born with a sin nature. And out of that sin nature, we sin in our thoughts, and our actions, and our deed. And the Bible says we'll be judged based on that. We'll be judged based on how we live. Listen to this. Romans chapter 2. Back up a little bit. Romans chapter 2. I'll start in verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing... That God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and unrepentant, impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, But obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. What's he saying? He's saying God is going to pour out his wrath against sinners. He says, if you're sinful, you are going to experience on that day wrath and tribulation and judgment. And it's just. It's what we deserve. If God would have consumed Moses on the mountainside, he would have been worthy to be worshipped for all of eternity because his justice would have been on display. We deserve God's wrath. All of us. He says, if you do good, glory and honor. But Paul here is really the one who wrote Romans. He's setting this up. Because in the next chapter he says, there's none good. None of us are good. None of us are righteous. None of us seek after God. We're liars and murderers, all of us. He says, we're not righteous. We're not good. That's where we pick back up. Verse 19 of chapter 3. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Saying God didn't give his law to show us how to be saved, but that we need to be saved. And then he puts forth Christ as a propitiation. That on the cross, Jesus, not as a type, not as a shadow, but Jesus goes to the cross. The word propitiation means this. Listen to me. The word propitiation means this. That on the cross, Jesus represented us. That he represented you. That he was a picture of you. That he was a picture of me. And God the Father treated him accordingly. God poured out his wrath on Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, for our sake, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, Jesus drinks and consumes the wrath of God, and he's consumed by it. Jesus dies in our place. He takes the death that we deserve. He takes the wrath that we deserve. He takes the hell that we deserve. The difference is, Death and hell can't hold Jesus. The difference is Jesus wasn't a sinner. So his sacrifice appeases the wrath of God. He absorbs it and satisfies the wrath of God towards Moses, towards me, towards you, towards any who would repent and believe and call out on the name of Jesus for salvation. He takes the wrath takes our sin and rises again, destroying the power of sin and death and the grave over us. That by his death, he kills death. So that you and I could be redeemed, could be restored. So that you and I could be the men that God created us to be. How are we going to be the husbands and fathers and leaders and teachers the men that God has created us to be? By the blood of Jesus. By his life, his death, and his resurrection. And just like Jesus was a picture of us so that he could absorb the wrath of God and take our place in the grave and rise again in victory, so now, because he's done that, we get to be a picture of him to our families. Because he did that, because he represented us, now we get to represent him. Proclaim the goodness of the gospel to our families and, and how we live and what we say, what we do. We can go before the Father now. We can go boldly before the throne of grace because Jesus was our high priest. Now we're priest. And we have direct access to God. And we can go on the behalf of other people and intercede for them to pour out time and, and prayer and tears for our children, for our grandchildren, for our friends, for strangers, for the nations, we can intercede and we can lead. Ultimately, we, we've got to do this by example. We've got to speak, we've got to preach, but we've got to do it by example. Because the responsibility that God has laid on you as a husband, as a father, or in your singleness, the people that he's given to you under your responsibility, no one else can do that. 
God's ordained that you do it. And you'll lead by example one way or, or the other. But God has given us his promise. He's promised us his presence. He said, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He's given you every promise and provision that you need for this life and the life to come. He's given us his strength. So I'll say, I guess, close this way. Some of you, you heard the gospel this morning. And I would, I would, I would beg you to repent. You're not following Christ. You're not following Christ. You're living life your, your own way. Maybe like Moses, feel good. Got a family, got a job. Maybe, maybe that was the picture with Moses. Maybe he was just content to live out his days in Midian. And you don't see the great need. Man, the wrath of God. The wrath of God. By nature, we are children of wrath because we come from Adam. By birth and by deed, we deserve God's wrath. I beg you to repent, to call out to Jesus to save you. Maybe it's the picture that Moses was just eaten up with his failures and his insecurities, and he's saying, who am I? I'm going to be a Christian. can't be a godly man if you knew what I did. Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is more powerful than your rebellion. His resurrection is more powerful than your sin. He can rescue you. He can save you. He can make you a new creation. Moses was 80 stinking years old. 80. Man, God can save anybody at any point and use them for his glory. Not that 80 is that old if you're 80. That's pretty old. That's awesome. For the church, I think, man... If, we, if we'd re- remind ourselves of this often, we have a huge responsibility, huge responsibility and privilege to represent God. But we have everything we need already in Christ. If we would do what the scripture tells us to do, to look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and we're to follow in that example. Don't, don't grow weary while doing good. Look to Jesus. That's good. That's real good. Yeah. We need to personally believe and proclaim the gospel. Yeah. To ourselves, to our family, to everyone the Lord would give us influence over. It's a high and glorious calling. It's hard because we're selfish in our flesh. We're lazy in our flesh. We're lustful in our flesh. So daily, we could submit that to the gospel of Jesus Christ and watch us, watch him raise us up. Now I encourage you, you don't know christ that you'd repent that you call out to jesus i got a room full of men that would love to spend this afternoon telling you about jesus shooting guns and telling you about jesus and i, I don't know but i'm guessing we're going to eat meat somewhere in the middle and that's going to be great but for real they're, they're, the guys on this staff love to tell you about jesus if you find a bald guy with a beard he can tell you about jesus just in general in life. Man, we'd love to tell you about Jesus. We'd love to talk to you about what Jesus can do to redeem your life. It's who God is. Listen to me. It's who God is. He's a redeemer. Pray with me. Father, I love you.
Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your amazing grace. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our sin and our shame upon yourself and rising again in victory, that you are our conquering warrior king who went into the grave not to be defeated but to kill death, to kill our sin and rise again so that we could be your people, so that we could be forgiven, so we could become your sons, so we could become the men that you created us to be. You are worthy of our worship through song, through study, through prayer, through the proclamation of your gospel. You are worthy of it all. We love you in Christ's name. Amen.